Good morning. Nice to see you folks this morning. This morning we are going to address the confession of faith again. And this time, chapter 15, Repentance Unto Life and Salvation. It's found in the back of the hymnal on page 678. It's in the back of the hymnal 678. Now let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time in his house today. Father, thank you for your great goodness to us. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins, for the precious blood of Jesus. We pray that as we draw near to you this morning, that you would draw near to us and fill us with the Holy Spirit. Shine light upon our hearts that we would honor and glorify you. As we study your word and as we pray and as we sing, that you would draw near to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have a great privilege of having from our forefathers a complete what you could call diary of the things most surely believed among us, the rich, mature fruit of that wonderful revival of true religion known as the Protestant Reformation. And after 150 years of renewing gospel light among his people, his people wrote down the mature deliberations of that light and illumination. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the Savoy Declaration, and also in the 1689 London Confession. That's the light that came among the English-speaking people, but also there was additional light that came in Europe, and and came particularly among the Dutch. And the Dutch standards were also written during that time. But our tradition is not so much with the Dutch standards, but with our own English-speaking standards of the Westminster and Savoy and London Confession. Now, for the most part, when John Owen and the Independents, not a rock band, when John Owen and the Independents wrote the Savoy Declaration in 1658. For the most part, they copied the structure and content of the Westminster Confession. However, for some reason that I don't understand, when they came to the issue of gospel or saving repentance, they made significant differences, alterations of the Westminster Confession. And when our Baptist forefathers in 1677, not 1689, because they weren't allowed to publish their confession in 1677, they didn't publish it till after the so-called bloodless revolution of 1688. That's why it was published in 1689, but 
was actually drafted in 1677, before it was legal to be a Baptist in England. So when our Baptist forefathers in 1677 drafted this Confession of Faith, they, they didn't follow the Westminster, but they followed Savoy. And what we have in our 1689 Confession of Faith is almost a verbatim following or a replica, almost verbatim, not quite exactly verbatim, but almost, of the 1658 Savoy Declaration on Repentance. Now, if this were a seminary class, this would be great to delve into what the Westminster says and what the Savoy says, how we follow Savoy, not Westminster, what the changes are and all that, but oh, good for you. This is not a seminary class. This is a Sunday school class. So I'm just going to tell you about that, but I'm not going to get into the comparative study of Westminster, the changes in Savoy, how we followed Savoy. You really want to get into that, don't you? Yeah, too bad. <laughs> you want to get into that? Go to seminary. Go to Reformed Baptist Seminary. Guarantee you, I'll get into it with you. But not this morning. I decided, nah, this morning, I'm just going to tell them what the confession says. Because this is a Sunday school class. But I'm going to tell you that we could go a whole lot further into this if you were in seminary. All right, now, enough smart aleck welcome to New York remarks. Let's get down to what it actually says. There are five paragraphs in the Confession of Faith on the subject of saving or gospel repentance. The first thing that they do is they feature two notable occasions of saving repentance in uh, paragraphs 1 and 2. Then in paragraph 3, they open up the distinguishing features of saving or gospel repentance. And, of course, that's where they open up the heart of what repentance really actually is. Then they talk about the obligation of Christians to continue in a life of gospel repentance. And then in the fifth and final paragraph, they talk about the effectiveness of saving repentance. That God actually uses repentance as a means of the forgiveness of sins. So you have the occasions in paragraphs 1 and 2, the features in paragraph 3, the obligation in paragraph 4, and the effectiveness in paragraph 5. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. Now, first of all, two notable occasions of gospel repentance, of saving repentance. The conversion of inveterate sinners and the restoration of backsliding saints. They think that the scripture highlights or especially notes or features or shines the spotlight on two notable occasions 
of saving repentance. And the first notable occasion is the conversion, the radical conversion of an inveterate sinner. And the second notable occasion is the restoration of a backsliding saint. The conversion of a sinner, the restoration of a backsliding saint. Now I tried to find a word to describe this sinner. I wanted to use the word notorious. But that word doesn't quite fit because notorious has more to do with a public reputation. And what they're talking about is not limited to those who are publicly known for being notorious in sin, although it would apply to them. I use the word inveterate, and this is why. Let me read 15.1. Such of the, of the elect that are converted at riper years, having sometime lived in the state of nature, that's why I say inveterate, and therein serve diverse lusts and pleasures. The Savoy Declaration added lusts and. For some reason, they took lusts and out and said, therein served diverse pleasures. That's the only change they made. Right? Yours doesn't say lusts, right? It just says diverse pleasures. Why can't I ever get this right? Yours has lusts and pleasures? Okay, I see it. I don't know. The Savoy says lusts and pleasures, so I guess it is verbatim. For some reason, the version that I had, and again, I don't know why, took lusts out and didn't have lusts in it, and I can't explain why. I see the point. I see yours has lusts and pleasures. Savoy has lusts and pleasures having served diverse lusts and pleasures. That's the one that's in the hymn book. But that happened once before, didn't it? Where I had another version of the, of the 1689 that didn't have lusts in it. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, I see the point. Yes, I see it there. Diverse lusts and pleasures. This one I don't think is worth going back and trying to figure out where it came from and all the rest. They followed Savoy verbatim. Serve diverse lusts and pleasures. That, that statement reminds you of a text, right? Well, what text? Titus chapter 3. And this is the text that they cite. To speak evil of no man, not to be contentious, to be gentle, showing all meekness toward all men. For we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures. Comes right out of Titus chapter 3. Living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love toward man appeared, not by works done in righteousness, which we did ourselves, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So there you have it. Such of the elect that are converted at riper years, having sometime lived in this state of nature, and therein serve diverse lusts and pleasures, God, in their effectual calling, gives them repentance unto life. 
gives them repentance unto life. So God has also given or granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life, Acts 11.18. So they highlight or feature the fact that there are Christians that were inveterate sinners, that lived gross lives of horrible sin. People like me, a wretched, hell-deserving sinner saved by grace. It highlights the fact that in the case of people like me, that God grants them repentance unto life. Now exactly why they felt it was better to feature this rather than to say what the Westminster said about everybody that's converted repents? I don't know. I can't explain that. But that's what it says. Now, would it be appropriate, based on this, to say that our confession of faith denies that all converted people repent from sin? My answer to that is no. Our confession doesn't deny that everyone that's truly converted repents from sin. That would be a leap to go beyond what this says. This doesn't say that. Doesn't say what the Westminster said either, though. What that said was, Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. By it, a sinner, out of a sight and sense not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, etc. So, why'd they change it? I don't know why they changed it. But don't jump to the conclusion that by that change they meant to say, well, there are some Christians that have never repented and don't need repentance, and repentance is only for some people doesn't say that. Are we clear it doesn't say that? Alright. Alright, the second thing that they highlight is the restoration of a backsliding saint. Wherein there is none that does good and does not sin. And the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. So they're saying the best of men may fall into great sins. The best of men may fall into great sins. God has, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling, be renewed through repentance unto salvation. So there's a second noteworthy, highlighted occasion of saving repentance that they think it's appropriate to underscore, and that is the restoration of a backsliding saint. And what's a backsliding saint? I, I use the word backsliding. The word backsliding refers to a genuine believer 
who has fallen into some gross sin that wounds his conscience or her conscience and could even bring them to question whether they're even really saved. It's possible for a believer to fall into that kind of gross sin, such as David when he fell into the sins of adultery and proxy murder. And yet Psalm 51 is the record of his genuine restoration through repentance for that gross sin. The confession also cites the case of Peter. Um, it says in Luke, it cites Luke 22:31 to 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan asked to have you that he might sift you as wheat, but I made supplication for you that your faith fail not, and do you, when you have turned again, establish your brothers. So it's talking about Simon renewing repentance after falling into the sin he fell into. So those are the two noteworthy occasions. The conversion, that is the transition from wrath to grace, from a state of sin to a state of grace of inveterate sinners who have lived for some time in the state of sin and lived in diverse lusts and pleasures. The second occasion that they highlight is the backsliding saint, a genuine believer who falls into gross sin and then is renewed and restored. So these are two occasions of repentance featured in Holy Scripture that the confession highlights as notable. Secondly, after they identify these two noteworthy occasions of gospel repentance, they underscore and spell out the distinguishing features of saving or gospel repentance. They open up the, its nature, its cause, its means, its substance, and its fruits. Well, let's go through the paragraph and see if you can find these distinguishing features in what they say. Look at its nature. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace. In its nature, it is an evangelical grace. See if you can find its cause. Whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin. What causes it? What causes it is Holy Spirit wrought conviction. What is that? Holy Spirit wrought conviction is a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible. He's brought to conviction of sin. That's what causes repentance. A conviction of sin produced by God, the Holy Spirit. What is the means of saving repentance? A person by faith in Christ 
does humble himself. By what means does a person under conviction of sin repent? The answer? By faith in Christ. So it, it's interesting how the, how the confession connects saving repentance with saving faith. And what's the substance of saving repentance? What actually is it? Well, they talk about what it is inwardly and then what it is outwardly. Inwardly, it involves contrition. And outwardly, confession. Inwardly, contrition. Outwardly, confession. Inwardly, contrition. A person does humble himself, contrition. Humble himself for it, for his sin, with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, inward disposition of contrition. He humbles himself with godly sorrow, detestation, self-abhorrency. What's the outward expression? Praying, confessing sin, praying for pardon and strength of grace. Inwardly contrition, self-humbling, loathing of self for sin. Outwardly confession, praying to God for forgiveness of sin, confessing sin, and asking for pardon for the sin. So what is repentance? Inwardly contrition, outwardly confession. That's the substance of saving repentance. And then, what are the fruits? Bring forth fruits. Meet for repentance. And what is the evidence or fruit of genuine saving repentance? Here it is. With a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. It, it is an endeavor of universal godliness. Genuine repentance gives rise to fruits, a transformed life, reformation of life. You follow? Bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. What are those fruits? Change the way you live. So when you genuinely repent, inwardly contrite, outwardly confessing, the fruits are that you change the way your lifestyle in everything. Gospel, godly, thorough, biblical reformation. All right, now let's go through these. First of all, the first distinguishing feature is the nature of gospel repentance, that it is an evangelical grace. And God also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Acts 11.18 It is an evangelical grace. It is something that God works and grants in the heart. Like faith, God gives it, God grants it, God blesses every genuine believer with gospel saving repentance from sin. The effective cause of it is Holy Spirit wrought conviction. 
The Holy Spirit makes us sensible, that is, conscious and aware. He convicts us of the manifold evils of our sin. John 16, 8. And he, when he was has come, he will convict the world in respect of sin and righteousness and judgment. The instrumental means by faith in Christ. It's impossible. There is no such thing as unbelieving repentance just as there's no such thing as impenitent faith. There's no such thing as impenitent faith and there's no such thing as unbelieving repentance. Joel 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore now, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Turn to the Lord your God. For he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, great kindness, and repents him of the evil. You turn to God by faith, by believing that he is a forgiving God and trusting in his forgiving grace. That's how you turn, by means of faith. And then, not only the instrumental means, but also the dual substance of Repentance, the inward disposition of contrition and the outward expression of confession. Look, the inward disposition of contrition. Look how they put it. Whereby a person does humble himself for sin with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency. Now, where did they get that? 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. For godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation. For behold the selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. And again, Job 42, verse 5 and 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Self-humbling, godly sorrow, detestation of sin, self-abhorrency. All of these are expressions of the biblical disposition of what's called contrition for sin. A brokenness of heart over sin is the inward disposition that is the substance of genuine gospel-saving evangelical repentance. And how is it expressed? Praying for pardon and strength. Psalm 51, David prays, Wash me of my sin. I, I know my iniquity. My sin is ever before me. And First John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praying for pardon. Confessing sin to God agreeing with what God says about our sin and asking for him to pardon us and cleanse us from all of our sin. So what is gospel repentance? What is saving repentance? Inwardly, it's contrition for sin. Outwardly, it's confession of sin. And these two things always go hand in hand. It always involves both inwardly being broken for sin and outwardly saying sorry to God for sin. 
Always that's what it is. And then what fruits does it produce? It produces thorough biblical reformation with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. Thorough biblical reformation and dependence on the Holy Spirit, a transformed life. These are fruits, meat, suitable for repentance. He that covers his sin, Proverbs 28:13, will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There's first of all the confession of sin and then there's also the forsaking of sin. So that's the substance of gospel or saving repentance. Now in 15.4 they move on to consider the continual obligation lifelong obligation as long as we have remaining sin of gospel repentance as repentance is to be continued throughout the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof so it is every man's duty which is why I get the idea of obligation to repent of his particular known sins particularly. Repentance is to be continued. If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. We have to continue to repent in a saving way from our sins as Christians because sin remains in us through our whole lives. And so we need to have always the inward disposition of contrition and the outward expression of confession and the fruits of thorough biblical reformation in our lives, throughout our lives, with respect to the ongoing of gospel repentance. And they, they appeal to various texts. First of all, they appeal to Zacchaeus at Luke 19.8. Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, behold, I give half my goods to feed the poor, and if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore fourfold. So here he was, conscious that he had many specific particular sins that he had committed against many specific particular people, and he needed to go to all those people and make all those things right with every person that he had wronged. When he was conscious and when it came to his mind, I wronged this person, then he had to make it right. When he was conscious that he wronged that person, he had to make it right. Whenever he's conscious of a particular sin, he has to repent of that particular sin particularly. Ongoing repentance is like that. It continues particularly with every particular sin. So if I sin against my wife today, I have to not only confess my sin to God, I have to confess my sin particularly to my wife that I sinned against her. And I offend her. I have to tell her I'm sorry. I have to tell God I'm sorry. And I have to tell her I'm sorry. Because I have to continue to repent of the particular sins that I commit every day. I always have to have toward my remaining corruption that always is with me in this life as we saw when we looked at uh, progressive sanctification, I have to continue to humble myself for my sin. 
and say that I'm sorry to God. And if I also wrong my fellow man to my fellow man that I've wronged for the sin that I've done. Does that make sense? Particular sins, particularly against God or against our fellow human beings. Throughout our lives, this never goes away. We never have to stop. We never get to the place where we live above sin and we don't ever have to say we're sorry for sin anymore. Oh, glad that's behind me. Not yet, folks. Not yet. No. Not as long as we have remaining corruption, which we will have with us until we're glorified, either at death or at the second coming of Christ, we have to continually walk with humility and contrition for our remaining sin. Psalm 19.13, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Show me my sins, O God so that I don't commit gross sin. And particularly, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 15, who before was blasphemer, persecutor, injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Faithful is the saying, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. He was repenting particularly of his sins of being a blasphemer and a persecutor and hurtful. All those sins, he, he repented of them. And then, this pertains to all of us, Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. As repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives, so it is every man's obligation, every man's duty, gospel duty, to repent of particular known sins, particularly. And then finally, the universal effectiveness of gospel repentance. In paragraph 5, again, this is in the back of the hymnal, the blue hymnal, page 678, paragraph Four of chapter 15 of the Confession of Faith, Repentance unto Life and Salvation. The universal effectiveness of gospel repentance. Such is the provision which God has made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. Yet, there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation to those that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and add to our God and he will abundantly pardon. When sinners, no matter what they've done, turn to the Lord and, and in repentance, he pardons. There's no sin so great 
that it's going to damn people who turn to God in evangelical repentance. Luke 13.3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. You'll all likewise perish if you don't repent. But if you do repent, you won't perish. And he was talking about notorious sinners. Which is why, by the way, I didn't use the word notorious. It was, it was it, what happened to these people. He said, do you suppose that these people were notorious sinners because this happened to them? No. I tell you they weren't. But unless you repent, you're going to perish in the same way. Repentance is absolutely essential to salvation. And yet, it is effective. Whoever repents is saved and doesn't perish. And if you do change your ways, and if you do turn to God, you will be forgiven. And there's no one who's done something so horrible that God won't forgive you when you turn to Him. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And then, in Luke 24, 47, Jesus underscores this, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all the nations. Repentance is not just for the Jews, but repentance is to be preached, Jesus said, unto remission of sin among all the nations. And Peter said on the day of Pentecost, repent and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you, and to as many as are afar off. And again, Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And again, Acts 20, 21. Testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks. Repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he calls people from every kindred, tribe, and tongue to get right with him, to turn away from sin and repentance, and to trust in the Lord Jesus by faith. And whoever turns to him, and turns away from sin, he will save. So don't think that because you've lived in sin so long, or done things so bad, that, it, that there's no hope for you and God will never forgive you. It's not true. God will forgive you. He will abundantly pardon you. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. And he calls all men everywhere to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an evangelical grace that is effective to save sinners. So we have the obligation of repentance, effectiveness of repentance, paragraphs 3 and 4. Substance of repentance, paragraph 2. And two noteworthy occasions of repentance. The conversion of an inveterate sinner and the restoration of a backsliding sin. Alright, that's what I wanted to say about... uh, Gospel repentance as set forth in our confession of faith. Does anyone have any comments or questions about it?